Hello and welcome to episode 40 of the MDDDS podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Fagala, and tonight I'll be teaching in our Worldview series. This will be part two. Last week, if you listened, David Flatt taught us on the worldview of Christian theism, or what we typically call Christianity. And tonight we'll be doing something completely different. And as medical and dental students or you know, healthcare professionals, this worldview is a big deal. This is a very common worldview. Uh, both in the scientific community and I would say culturally at large and increasingly so. This is a worldview of naturalism and naturalism is the belief of the philosophy that the natural world is all that exists. Another way of saying this would be what you see is what you get. Obviously that doesn't allow for God or for something that exists outside of this, the closed system that a naturalist would say that we find ourselves in. Uh, and So philosophically again very very different and very much at odds with that of Christianity. And so the average agnostic or atheist would likely, in some portion, if not completely, ascribe to the philosophy of naturalism. So let's jump in, and I will say as a disclaimer before we do, I am not a philosophy teacher. I do not have a PhD in philosophy. I certainly have not studied naturalism to the extent that I would feel comfortable teaching an entire course on it. Um, And so for one night, I think I do an okay job but please give me some grace on this um, as I teach it. I do think, again, though, there will be a lot for you to enjoy. So let's go with naturalism right now. Okay, so let's start with a definition. All right, so we'll look at a definition of naturalism. Naturalism is the view that the natural world is all that there is and that we should only believe what can be scientifically proven. So that is your blank. And so another name for naturalism is scientism. Okay, it's the kind of exaltation of science is a field of study and that it holds all the answers you could say Um, and I guess real quickly before that let's talk just as a summary of what David talked about last week if you weren't here on what is a worldview and as David said I really like this idea of it sort of like being the eyeglasses that you put on and you see the world differently David wears orange colored sunglasses when he thinks thinks about the Tennessee volunteers and uh, I've, I've just I've broken my Arkansas glasses the they don't work I can't see anything through them so anymore Um, But, uh, you know, it seeks to answer the big questions of life, and I think that is one issue culturally is is that people aren't really asking the big questions of life. I think we're allowing other people to to have those answers for us. And if you allow culture to give you those answers, the answers you're going to get are going to be more in line with naturalism than with Christianity. Um, And it contains a mountain of often unconscious assumptions upon which your conclusions are based. And so if you're just like kind of eking through life, not asking these questions, not seeking them out yourself, you're either having most of these answer, answers answered by your parents, who in fact may have had their foundational questions answered by their parents, and so on and so forth, uh, or you're having them answered by your culture, or just not answered at all. And I think what that Craig quote is important, why it's important, is, is that if we don't think that it matters whether God exists or not, it's very easy to say, well, then why do I even need to ask these questions? Uh, but there are some big implications of if there is not a God, what does that mean? And that's what we'll look at tonight, I think. All right, so there'll be five questions that a good worldview should be able to answer. And so we'll look at those in turn. I know it's a little bit like kind of trudging through the mud to get through these sort of questions, and it makes my mind kind of hurt a little bit, um, but I promise it's worth the effort. And so the questions are origin, where did reality and the self come from, meaning, what is the purpose of existence, identity, who am I, morality, what is right and wrong, and destiny, well, what will happen to me after death? So each worldview will go through, we'll go through each of these five questions. Uh, let's see. 
Yeah, so if you lead an unexamined life, it'll lead you to an answer that is implausible or contradictory. And I think that's where a lot of us are at, that you could say you're a Christian and yet have beliefs that make no sense with what we laid out last week with Christian theism. That you could believe that the Old Testament is a fairy tale or that Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead because of naturalism, let's say. But that doesn't make you a Christian. I mean, at the point at which you don't believe in the resurrection is a literal thing, uh, you're not a Christian by... I think every metric that really matters, um, which is a tough thing to say because there's a lot of people that are there. There's a lot of people that are doctorates of theology that are there, and I struggle with that as a thing that we're going to kind of be at culturally. So, and as a church, all right. So we're going to look at also is this uh, are these answers true? Are they good? Are they beautiful? Um, I will mostly follow this. I'll be honest. This is where I probably struggled the most in coming up with this is that I feel like I was really answering to this exactly. So if I'm doing this wrong. You correct me. True would be, does your answer conform with what we know about reality? So does it seem to be true? Good is the difficult one for me, is it does the answer satisfy the question? And on some of these, it's sort of like a sort of, you know, but it really depends on what your philosophy is, what your worldview is. And mine being Christian, it's hard to say that these are good answers. Uh, and then beautiful is answer fulfilling, obviously a subjective question. And I'll just go ahead and tell you a spoiler alert. I think they're all like not very beautiful answers. And I think that's really the thing is, is that naturalism and a, and, a, and a naturalist is going to want to say that naturalism is beautiful. But I think truly, logically, naturalism is not very beautiful. I think the conclusions of naturalism are, are pretty ugly, actually. Okay, and then here we go. We'll go through this. All right, so we are here. So naturalism, again, like I said, it's sort of like scientism, the view that uh, basically science holds all the answers. Okay, and this is not really like unlike people, even someone who went to a Christian college in a science department like this kind of feels like sometimes the way that classes are taught like a little bit. Like you're kind of like bowing down to the altar of science and it holds all the answers, uh, at least all the answers that are really relevant. Um, certainly you had science teachers that were like that. If you went to state school, I'm sure it was even more so maybe like that. Um, but I think it's kind of silly and we'll, we'll talk about maybe why. Uh, another way of looking at this, this little acronym here, which you can pronounce it WYSIWYG if you want to, and you don't have to, but is the idea that what you see is what you get. And I think this is, again, a really prevalent way of thinking about nature and our world and our experience and reality is that what you see is what you get. And if I can't see it, if I can't test it, I can't touch it, I can't feel it, it doesn't exist. Of course, that presents an issue when you're talking about creation. Like, well, we can't go back and test that. We can't touch and feel creation or what the, you know, things were like then. But I do think that the what you see, what you get idea is sort of a good way of thinking about naturalism, what it means. Um, and so it would say that the physical, material, natural world what we experience with our five senses is the only solid reality. Uh, so this would also say then that religious explanations or doctrines or imaginary superstitions, illusions, or wishful thinking having nothing to do with what is real or knowable. Okay? So here are some academic names for WYSIWYG. What you see is what you get. So we've got naturalism. We've already talked about that one. That's the idea that nature is all there is. Your blank here, materialism. This is the belief that the material world is all that there is. Very similar, just a different way of saying it. And then these two, atheism and agnosticism. I didn't make you spell agnosticism, okay? Um, so atheism, this would be the, the firm belief that there is no God. Agnosticism would be the belief that we can't know or we can't be sure that there is no God. Um, this kind of gets into like a little bit like how is that really different? It seems that more like kind of humble intellectuals that are naturalists would, would say of themselves that they're agnostics, even though they're probably in fact atheists, whereas more kind of 
cocky or more out loud, you know, naturalists would say they're atheists. And it's not, it's sort of like a square and a rectangle. There is some, you know, kind of crossover here, but not entirely. Okay, so like Carl Sagan, for example, like we'll talk about Carl Sagan later, really well known for the work he's done on the cosmos and books he's written and things like that, uh, held up really high regard among science people. He would say of himself that he was an agnostic, but based on everything he's ever written, he's probably an atheist. Okay, but atheism would require some element of faith to say that definitively I know there's no God. An agnostic would be more in the camp of, well, who cares? Does it matter? And so to that quote at the very beginning again, an agnostic would decide, well, it doesn't really matter if there's not a God, and so I'm not going to try and answer it. Or maybe just intellectually, I can't answer it, and they're just being honest and say, well, I can't answer, but I don't think there is, but I'll say I'm an agnostic. Okay. Uh, but I would say that agnostics make daily decisions as if the WYSIWYG worldview were true. And so I think they're certainly closer to atheism than they are to Christianity. Okay. All right, so with this worldview, I would say, too, that uh, we become mere cosmic accidents. We're here as a result of time, chance, and matter, and when we die, that's it. There's no lasting meaning, purpose, or value to life. And I want to read that last part again. There's no lasting meaning, purpose, or value to life. And if you really accept that what you see is what you, what you get, that this is all that exists, then there's really no difference between me and that, whatever this thing is, coffee table, <laughs> or me and those shoes. I don't know why I didn't know what a coffee table was. <laughs> We're the same thing. Um, and that there is really no true meaning, value, or purpose to life. That when you die, that's it. Okay, we return to, to dust. Dust we came. But I don't, think, I don't think people will really live that way. So when we look at this worldview, the conclusions of it, seem different than the way that people live, okay? All right, so let's go through these. We'll start with origin. All right, and so what a naturalist would say of origin is, to the question, where did reality and self come from? The cosmos exists as a uniformity of cause and effect in a closed system. Closed system. All right, so you can say this is sort of similar to deism. Is anybody familiar with what deism is? God created the world and wound up. And yeah. yeah. It was like you were waiting on that question. That was great. Yeah, so that is when you think of God as like the great clockmaker, they'll say that as an example. And most of our founding fathers, or you could correct me here, some of our founding fathers were deists. Okay, so I think Thomas Jefferson certainly was a deist. What about John Adams? You'd probably say he was a theist. Yeah, he's a good guy. Okay. Some of our founding fathers, probably what was Benjamin Franklin? He's a deist. Okay, all right. Some of these guys, I don't know it as well as David does. George Washington, I'm just kidding. Uh, he was a theist, right? Eh, we don't know. Washington's complicated. Okay. He went to church every Sunday, but... I've seen where he went to church. Actually, you, you know, yeah, so we don't know the hearts of these men. Yeah. Yeah. All right, so it's the idea that God created this clock, this universe, and he stepped away from it, and he's distant from it. Okay, so really not so different from what a naturalist would say. Um, and so some naturalists would, ag would agree with this kind of conception, uh, but others would find existence to be far more complex and mysterious than this kind of clockwork concept can account for. Obviously, many would say, that, well, that's not a thing. There was no outside force or creator that would have done this anyway. It's a closed system. But when you kind of press onto this question, well, then how did the universe create itself? You're kind of left with not such a great answer. And so there's, well, there's not really an answer for that. And we've got some theorems and some ideas. Um, a lot of smart people have tried to come up with like a theory for everything and have failed to find something uh, as of yet. So nothing real would exist outside of this closed system. So if you think about our universe being like a box, it's closed, there's nothing outside of that box. Um, so that would mean that there's no gods or God or angels or demons. 
the souls of departed dead. There's no heaven. There's no hell. It's just, again, what you see is what you get. So this uh, worldview would eliminate the supernatural. Um, and you could say that even if God were to do a miracle, the naturalist would have to come up with some sort of scientific explanation for it. And so you'll see that if you'll read about like the ten plagues from Exodus, you'll see that there is a scientific explanation that they've come up with for each one of those. It's like, well, the water didn't really turn to blood. What it was, it was a red tide, and these, these calf, they died, but it was because of this disease. You know, so there's, if you look that up, there are explanations scientifically for each one of those. All right, so is this origin, is this true? Well, I would say no. I'm someone who does believe in miracles, so I don't feel like it explains for things that are miraculous or that are supernatural. Um, certainly doesn't explain for God, but if we live in a closed system that came into existence at some finite point in the past, then what is the scientific explanation? That's a deeper conversation for right now, but if it's a closed system that at some point, we know that it, it came into existence at a finite point, how did that happen? So how did, I mean, literally, how did something come from nothing? Not just nothing, meaning just like a vastless kind of like soup, you know, like we've kind of heard that, like it's primordial soup, and out from that came this infinitesimally small galaxy that exploded and all this kind of stuff. Um, well, how did that come from nothing? And I mean, no time, no space, no matter, nothing. I think that's a very difficult question to ask. And it was much easier when we thought that the universe was past eternal. Because if it's past eternal, like really anything's possible. You give something enough numbers of times or infinity, as it were, it could happen. But if you're finite, and even if it's 13 billion years, it's still finite. There's only so many opportunities for something like this to bloom out of that. Not to mention, it had to go from nothing to something at some point which is a huge, huge problem. And I don't think it's one that they really maybe give enough credence to because it's a difficult question to answer. Okay, it's much easier to say, well, God existed outside of the system and started into motion. All right, so as a Christian though, if God doesn't exist or exists inside a closed system, then he isn't sovereign and he isn't all powerful. The biblical resurrection also loses its point, its purpose, its power. And so I, I think we have to divorce ourselves from wanting as science people to think this way because it's how people think around us because it really does destroy Christianity. The point at which you say that Jesus didn't raise from the dead or rise from the dead because he's human is a point at which Christianity really falls apart, truly. Um, if you say that God isn't sovereign or that God isn't all-powerful, it really falls apart too. All right, so your blank here is, is that God cannot exist as traditionally understood within naturalism. And I think it's very important. I spent a lot of time on this because we have to guard against this theology. I taught, it's been several months ago, but looking at polls of even like preachers, and depending on the type of denomination, there's as many as like 50% of preachers that would believe that the resurrection was just a literary device, that it's meant to help you overcome struggles in life, that it's not real. And it just blows my mind. About as much as anything blows my mind right now, culturally, it would be that, that you would be a preacher preaching at a church and not believing the resurrection is real. I just, I don't... I have questions about like the flood, whether it was global or like what creation was, but if the resurrection is not, is not real, this is all a waste of time, like period. So if I'm wrong about that, then tell me. So, all right, is it good? This is one of those ones again, is it good? Does it answer the question? Well, it's attempting to answer the question, I think. And so if there is no God, it has to be a closed system, so on and so forth. But for me, I would say it's not really a good question mainly because reality and the self both seem more complicated than a closed system of cause and effect would allow. So this gets a little bit deeper into some things I'm not as much of an expert on, but uh, the logical conclusion of a closed system, and we've learned this as science people, as chemistry people, talk about a closed system and how everything is held to a cause and effect. 
So if it's really a closed system, then some cause over there will cause an effect over here. Okay, and so in that way, there are people that are called determinists, and so this blank is determinism. Okay, so determinism is a doctrine that all events, including human action, are ultimately determined by causes external to the will. Okay, so if you let that kind of sink in for a second, if we are just matter that sort of evolved into where we are by random chance, um, and that in the sense that I'm stardust and so is that little desk right there, that table. Um, and if actions are kind of dictated by cause and effect and they're determined by that, it's not how all naturalists think, this is how some of them think, then really how can we be held responsible for what we do morally? Um, and again, this gets into some pretty deep theology, um, but if things are determined, it's almost like um, kind of predestination on an extreme extent. Like if decisions are just made for me, then how can I be held responsible? It'd actually be a really great defense in the court of law. It's like, well, I know I killed this person, but it was a cause and effect thing. Um, obviously, I think like morality is a thing that we have free will over, that we have control over. But if you're taking this to its logical ends, that it's a closed system and it's a system of cause and effect, this is where some people end up. Okay. Now, most modern naturalists argue for a sort of free will, but it doesn't really seem to logically follow from this concept um, of things being purely chemical and purely uh, dictated by cause and effect. Okay, so is this beautiful? Well, I would say that beauty isn't even possible in a deterministic reality of cause and effect. Uh, what is beauty or art or love if everything uh, is without free will and that free will is an illusion? Um, and if our actions are determined by chemical cause and effect, what does that even mean? You know, so what would it mean? It'd almost be like asking a robot to appreciate art or to, or to love. You see that play out like in sci-fi movies where it's like uh, Prometheus, and if you've seen that, like the alien kind of prequel. Anyone seen that? So the character David, um, played by Michael Fassbender, is really good. Um, but it's like a robot that's like highly designed, but it's like expecting him to love or to care as a human. It's just not really possible. That's played out in a lot of movies too. But um, I think that's kind of the, the question, that a robot that's designed for a specific purpose, that even if it has this really complex decision tree that's programmed, is it really a person? Is it really in love? Does it really feel or does it have emotions? And I would think reality that we know would seem more complicated than that, I think. Okay. All right, so Proverbs 3.19. We'll have a Bible verse that answers all these. I'm sorry I wasn't advancing the slides. By wisdom the Lord laid the earth's foundations. By understanding he set the heavens in place. Okay, so we would say that that's, you know, the origin of our universe is what we read about in Proverbs and other places. Okay. All right, so for a little bit of levity, because I know it's deep. All right, I found this. I was looking at cause and effect, and then cause is ta Tony practices the piano 20 minutes every day, and this person answered to the effect, he is a big nerd. I love that. So I don't want to show Charlie this. We're trying to get him to practice piano, but anyway. All right. So let's move into uh, meaning. What is the purpose of existence? I, I think, you know, as, as dense, again, as this stuff is, the question of origin, the question of meaning, I mean, like, I mean, how many more important questions are there than those two? I mean, I guess the other three are pretty important too, but those are huge questions. How often do we ask these questions? You know, probably not very often, but... So to this question of meaning, a naturalist would say that history is a linear stream of events linked by cause and effect, but without an overarching purpose. Core commitments are adopted unwittingly or chosen by individuals. So you'd see this is sort of like this, like, illusory uh, free will, kind of, is what a naturalist would, would kind of be forced to say. Okay, um, so is this true? Is this good? Is this beautiful? Well, is it true? I would say that naturalism provides 
There you go. No rational justification to act selflessly, but naturalists often choose to promote universal love and the welfare of the species. The meaning that is grounded in the temporal is subjective and without ultimate meaning. So to unpack that a little bit, if so naturalism and evolution are sort of at odds, you could say. So the point of evolution is, is survival of the fittest. Um, it, I'm going to mess this up trying to explain this. Um, a naturalist who is being selfless is not really acting in line with evolution. So certainly you could say that being selfless, being humble, being charitable is sometimes helpful. But if you're truly basing it on like a biological like cause and effect or a chemical cause and effect, it wouldn't always line up. It doesn't always help propagate the species uh, or you know, get your genetics out there more so to be selfless. Does that make sense? Okay. So it's sort of at odds with, with itself. Okay. Um, let's go on to this. Good. Uh, naturalists can create illusory purposes, but life seems to mean much more. So I, I feel like there is some deeper meaning or purpose that we all are drawn to that you're sort of lost if it's just chemicals in, in a test tube, effectively. Um, is it beautiful? Well, I'd say no. If naturalism is true, then life is absurd. And so if the best we have is just the illusion of purpose or meaning, I think that's a pretty absurd existence. So what we're forced to do is we're, we're forced to create the illusion of meaning and purpose and value to get ourselves through this, like sort of like a rat in a cage or something, like chasing after cheese, because what else are you going to do? Um, but what's the real point in that if you're just a rat in a cage? Okay. Um, all right, let's go to this Bible verse. Romans 8, 28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love Him, who have been called according to His purpose. So we would learn from the Bible that God has a purpose for us, a purpose that is outside of this system that we find ourselves in. And I think that in and of itself makes this all make a lot more sense. I think it speaks to, I think you were talking about, maybe this was in class or this was here last time, we were talking about C.S. Lewis saying that when we have a hunger, we find that there's food for it. We have a sexual desire, we find that there's sex for it. We have a desire for something bigger or something that, kind of exists outside of this, and it would be weird if there weren't something there to fill that need. Um, I think there is a, a feeling or a desire for something more, and I think if you just, as we're driving around these beautiful areas in New England, you look at all this stuff and the complexity of it and the beauty of it, to think of that, yeah, I think this just randomly happened. Like it just, it doesn't seem fulfilling, it doesn't seem to answer that. Um, again, some subjective things there, but, uh, and this is what Richard Dawkins would say, so probably the most, uh, you know, important atheist today, I would say that much as we might wish to believe otherwise, universal love and the welfare of the species as a whole are concepts which simply do not make evolutionary sense. So if you don't believe me when I say it, let him say it for me. Um, and that is like the classic tug of war between uh, a naturalist desire to make it feel worthwhile and the reality of the logic behind it. Okay? And so I think like the true naturalist we'll see next week ends up a nihilist. So he ends up as one that says life is meaningless and I may as well kill myself. Because that's the true conclusion of something. So if I find that I'm really no different than that, then what's the point in living? You know, if I'm just a rat in a cage running through an experiment, who cares? Okay. And so here is kind of the conclusion of this. It is impossible, the blanks are, to live consistently and happily with the naturalistic worldview. So consistently and happily. So either you can be happy and you can be inconsistent with your worldview, or you can be consistent with your worldview, become a nihilist, and be unhappy. It's hard to balance both of those desires. So here's an example of this to maybe help it make a little bit more sense. This is from Francis Schaeffer, 
and I'll just read it because it is better read, I think, than me trying to explain. But modern man, says Schaefer, resides in a two-story universe. In the lower story, and you can see that there, um, it is finite without God. Here life is absurd, as we have seen. In the upper story are meaning, value, and purpose. Now modern man lives in the lower story because he believes there is no God, but he cannot live happily in such an absurd world. Therefore, he continually makes leaps of faith into the upper story to affirm meaning, value, and purpose, even though he has no right to, since he does not believe in God. So bless you. So does that kind of make sense? Um, so it's, you sort of pretend a little bit. And that is, of course, what an atheist would say about a Christian. So well, you're just pretending. You're just trying to pretend to make your life more meaningful. And the thing about a philosophical debate on this, and there's you know, a lot smarter people that would debate this, is it kind of comes back to this Pascal's wager, if you've ever heard this, that, okay, so let's say Christianity ends up being untrue, what have I lost? Okay, if it ends up being true, what have I gained? And so if atheism ends up being true, what have you gained? Like nothing. You've been right for you know, a couple minutes when you were no different than a coffee table. Like, what, what does it matter? Um, you're gonna you know, freeze out with everyone else eventually when the universe dies. I mean, great. Um, so that's not like a, a correct answer, like to say, well, Pascal's wager says that I'll, but I mean, it is like kind of part of the conversation. They're like, well, why would you invest so much time and thought and energy into being right about something that benefits you in no way if you're right? Sort of like people that like to argue about everything. It's like, okay, you win, like big deal. Like you're right, you know, like me. <laughs> and it's like, that's you. <laughs> I'm trying to get better. Um, so anyway, it's just part of the bigger conversation. Uh, and this is kind of funny, I think, if you want to read it. Anyway, thank you for the little giggles for that. All right, so Groundhog Day, I told you I was talking about it. What do you think of Groundhog Day? It's a great movie. It's a great movie. Yeah, it's a classic. Was that the first time you've seen it? Was that the first time you've seen it? Oh, man, that's awesome. Yeah, probably... probably it might be my favorite Bill Murray movie, and these got a lot of good ones. It is a cinematic like. masterpiece. Well, I don't know that I'd go there. Oh, but it is good. As a comedy, I would say yes to that. There's like a whole cult. It has 98% on Rotten Tomatoes. Well, Rotten Tomatoes is a garbage website, but. I'm <laughs> <laughs> um, just kidding. <laughs> it's a qualitative website, not a quantitative website. I just can't get behind it. Um, anyway, I just. I'm, I'm just being stupid, please. See, this was like, this was like what, I, what I gained from winning this argument. All right, so in Groundhog Day, all right, whatever Bill Murray's character's name is, what is it? Don't remember, okay. The, Phil. Phil, yeah, exactly. Punkstani Phil and Phil, yeah, exactly. All right, so Phil, uh, he gets, actually, I read a thing on the behind the scenes of all this, is they cut it out of the script, but it was an ex-girlfriend who put a curse on him. And they had like a scene in the original script that cut it out, which I'm glad they did, because that sounds silly put a curse on him, and he was going to be stuck in this loop for 10,000 years. They don't explain that in the movie. Of course, he gets out of this loop, and if you haven't seen this yet, shame on you, um, by kissing uh, Annie McDowell's character. So, um, but the point is, he's waking up every day to the same day over and over again. It's Groundhog Day, and he has to go through the same motions as a TV reporter, and it, for a while, he kind of goes through all these sort of like questions of like, why am I here? What's the point of all this? And he tries to figure it out, and then he eventually like starts killing himself, which is sort of like the nihilistic like conclusion, then he finally you know, finds love and kisses and he gets out of the loop or whatever, I guess, to go on and live a happy life. Um, this was some guy, Nicholas's uh, review of the movie, which I thought was very apropos because it's very like naturalistic and now and cultural. Life comes with a purpose, survival, okay? 
But with birth doesn't come with a meaning, only monotony. We wake, work, go out, sleep, repeat. It's an infinite time loop with alterations to the cycle, if ostensibly. To break it requires self-actualization, discovering yourself and your place in the world and leaving a legacy when you die. All means living with the true meaning, as we're all born to die unless we grow to live. Okay, so this would... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Only two hearts, you know. If he had said this movie rocks, exclamation point three times, he would have gotten a lot more likes. But anyway, um, what's perfect about this is I just screenshotted off online, you know, when we were talking about Groundhog Day. It's like the exact opposite of my philosophy on life. I think it's like in every single way, like the complete opposite of how I think. Um, and it is complete illusion to say that that is a purpose or that's meaning. He's not wrong if he's a naturalist. Like this is this is it. This is nihilism. This is kind of what your conclusion should be. But to say that your meaning is to find so all means living with the true meaning as we're all born to die unless we grow. So growing to live is somehow like some sort of meaning or that you could leave a legacy. What, what kind of legacy could you leave if it doesn't matter? Like if it's all just stuff floating around in a, in a test tube. I don't know. So but anyway, this is kind of, I think, the interesting thing about like a movie like Groundhog Day. It gives you the ability to, to kind of grasp it and think about it in ways we understand. And that is the question, is, is life really just a loop of the same thing over and over and over? We uh, wake, work, go out, sleep, repeat, uh, or is there something more to it? Because if there's not, then it really is just sort of like Groundhog Day, but just maybe each day is a little different and the calendar changes. Okay, so let's go into identity. Who am I? All right, naturalism would say that human beings are complex machines. Personality is an interrelation of chemical and physical properties we do not yet fully understand. Uh, so if you're into this sort of stuff, you've got this guy, Rene uh, Descartes, and I'm saying that wrong because I'm not French. He's a 17th century French philosopher, mathematician, and scientist, and he believed, and so classically, we would think that, you know, humans had a soul, and that's how we would kind of think, you know, kind of like a Judeo-Christian concept of, of humans and reality and self. He was the first one that separated the mind with the machine or like the liver and the guts and all that kind of stuff you study, okay? Um, so most naturalists would see the mind as a function of the machine and not a separate entity. So he was sort of like one in the path towards just saying that the mind and what we think is really just a chemical byproduct, okay? And so we've got this Pierre-Jean-Georges Cabany. <laughs> uh, he put it more crudely. He said that the brain secretes thought as the liver secretes bile. Very beautiful, okay? Um, but it's a pretty honest answer. Okay, like how would you know our dreams or our thoughts be any different? Remember, in psychology class, as a, as a freshman, first year at Harding, uh, you know this, this the psychology teacher who was very boring and not a great teacher. I'm sorry, but he uh, asked us, he's like, "What do you think dreams are?" I don't know. I mean, I I guess they're like I don't know. You know, you're like a freshman, you're like, "What are dreams?" I've never thought about it. And he was like, after everyone had answered and get all these answers and maybe talked about the Bible and Joseph and all this and you know. I think they're hopes and aspirations, or they're us reliving our day, you know, or whatever. He was like, well, I think they're just random neur neuronal firings that don't mean anything. And I was like, oh, <laughs> that can't be what dreams are, right? Anyway, he was a bad teacher. Um, but this is what, it, like, a naturalist would say. Like, eh, it's just, you know, it's like a liver secretes bile, a mind secretes memories and thoughts and hopes, and that's all they are. Okay, is this true? Well, um, if humans are just complex machines made up of matter, like all animals, plants, and objects, then why are we so unique? We alone are capable of conceptual thought, complex speech, culture, and moral capacity. Why? So what you'll hear very often among people who are naturalists who are trying to buy into this, or scientists, sci 
scientism scientists, would be that humans are not more unique and special than animals. And so you see this kind of carry on to like, like true like extreme animal rights or like you know veganism or things like that. There is no difference. I've seen there's somebody I was following on Instagram that had a picture of a tree branch and it said something like, when you think about it, a tree branch is just as beautiful and as, and, and as unique as a human. And I was like, bull crap. <laughs> like, no, hold a baby and then say that. Like, no, this is not true. Like, don't be ridiculous. But there's no way that you would hold a tree branch and <laughs> put milk in it, the end of it and like nurture it. I mean, it's not the same thing as a baby. And so to say otherwise, it is someone living out the logical ends of a, a philosophy that they've accepted that does not line up with reality. So no, that's not, uh, to me not a true answer. Um, but if we're all made up of the same stardust, then why are humans clearly different? I say clearly different because I think we clearly are. It's self-evident to me that humans are different than plants or animals, okay? And I like plants and animals just fine. Um, I love to eat animals and plants the exact same. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Prefer animals. Um, but naturalists are forced, again, you get this, they painted themselves in this philosophical corner where they have to say that we're all the same. And I think that is one of the biggest holes in this whole thing. I think humans are, are special, and I don't think it's wrong to say that. All right, so is this good? If we are just machines that act as a result of a chemical cause and effect, then there is no such thing as good and bad. I talked about this earlier, but how could we be responsible for wrongdoing if our actions are determined? Um, we won't go any more deeper into that. Beautiful. Does life as a robot sound fulfilling and beautiful to you? Not to me. Okay. All right, so a Bible verse here in Genesis. And the Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree in the garden. So God didn't think the tree was more special than the man, right? <laughs> All right, so the man was created as a special creation on the last day, right, on the sixth day, as separate and apart from the rest of creation. When you look at Genesis 1, it's written in Hebrew. The terminology for God is different in chapter 1 than chapter 2. It's when in chapter 2, it becomes a personal word for God because he's creating humans. I mean, there, there's a clear and distinct difference between plants and animals and land and air and sea and all that and humans, okay? Obviously, you don't believe in the Bible, then that's not compelling to you. But All right, so this reminds me of The Matrix. I love movies. And this one obviously deals with a lot of this, like uh, Rene Descartes. How do you say his name? Okay. So let me make sure I'm doing this right, Ryan, because you're... I don't want your perfect attempts to break down because I'm saying Rene Descartes wrong. Um, I'm sure there's some way to lisp it a little more, some Descartes or something, anyway, but I can't. All right, so the matrix, the separation of the mind and the body, okay? So if you've not seen the matrix, you've had almost 20 years to see it, so, you know. So, and I think we, we talked about the matrix last week, so I won't tell my funny thing about Y2K. Anyway, it's not funny. But, um, so in this movie, the computers, the robots have taken over and now they're using humans to charge themselves. Okay, so that's, that's the movie, sorry. Um, but what they see, the reality is, is an illusion. Okay, so it all plays into the same you know, philosophical stuff. It's, it's a great college movie because it, you know, when you're in college, I was like 16 when I saw it, 17, uh, this is really deep, you know, philosophical. Now you kind of go back and watch it like, I don't know, you know. But they're borrowing a lot of names of characters and things from philosophy. Um, movie you know, shows like Lost do the same sort of thing, um, and I love this kind of stuff. It's like I love sci-fi that mixes in philosophy. Um, the Matrix explores these timeless questions: Who are we? What is reality? Are our lives nothing more than elaborate simulations programmed by hyper-intelligent supercomputer computers? And then are our minds and bodies two separate things, or are they combined? Okay, so I think some interesting questions there. All right. So morality: What is right and wrong? All right. So the naturalist would say. 
Values are constructed by human beings. Being good is advantageous. All right, so naturalism, uh, we'll talk about this in a couple weeks. Grant Dasher will come back and talk about postmodernism, which is kind of one and the same with this. But your blank is naturalism eventually leads to moral relativism. So what moral relativism is, I'll allow Grant to go into more detail on, but uh, the basic statement would be, since anyone, any one person's or culture's perspective is as good or as bad as any others, there's no way to say with compelling authority that anything is ever objectively right or wrong in all times and places. Okay, we know what this is. Okay, so this is a super popular way of thinking, that what's true for you is not necessarily true for me, and that's okay. Like, that's kind of like every, like, moral argument ends for, like, the last 12 years. Okay, it's like, well, that, that's good, and you can believe that, but I'm going to believe this. Like, that somehow concludes anything. Um, and I think it's sad, because if you make things relative, well, then what does anything really matter? Um, and it's really a cop-out, like, intellectually or philosophically to say, well, you could have that belief, but over here I have this belief. And it actually, I would say, is really out of line with... A system that's closed and that is objective. You know, if you're talking about pure science, it's hardly scientific to say that your belief system could be different and yet also correct. You can't have two corrects that are opposite. Okay. Anyway, all right. So let's see. Um, let's see. Most early naturalists continue to hold ethical views. I think this is interesting. Similar to those in the surrounding culture. So back in the 1700s, 1800s. Mostly the way that they thought ethically was the same as those of the surrounding culture, which have been Christian. Uh, what we'll start to see, though, is that especially today and even over the last 50, 60 years, that has changed. And so you can kind of think about what has changed. Traditionally, there would have still been a respect for individual dignity, an affirmation of love, a commitment to truth and basic honesty. Even Jesus was seen as a teacher of high ethical values. This is changing. So here are some of the recent twists. There's now a more permissive attitude to premarital and extramarital sex. There's a positive response to euthanasia, to abortion, and the individual's right to suicide. And these issues have started to separate naturalists from theists. Okay? And I think this divide is only going to increase as naturalism or humanism shifts further and further from its memory of Christian ethics. And I think we start to see this. I think this is why politics are kind of getting weird, and there's many reasons why they're getting weird. But if your cultural belief system or worldview is naturalism, what you see is what you get, then why do we think it's wrong to abort a baby? Or why do we think it's wrong that an, an old person would commit suicide? Or you know, a lot of these things change. Well, then why is it really wrong to have an extramarital affair if marriage is just some sort of you know, decision that you make? And what if at this point I don't feel like I want to make this decision anymore? But I don't want to go through the financial hassle, so I'll just cheat on my wife. Like, why does anything really matter? And the beauty of it is, is that, that I think those are true conclusions to make if you're a naturalist. Well, if I can get away with it, what does it matter? Okay. All right. So it'll be interesting to watch that. So is this uh, morality true, good, and beautiful? Is it true? Now, this is tough. I will be honest with you. Morality and the, and the argument for objective morality is a tough one for me because it is a compelling in part, but not entirely. Um, and so I will say this, is that values and ethics do differ from culture to culture. There are cultures that used to think it was okay to, to rip people's hearts out and offer it to sun gods and things. Uh, or to eat people, okay, or to do all sorts of weird things that I would say in my heart, well, that's objectively wrong. So that starts this whole big conversation. At the same time, I would say that I feel like, I hate saying I feel like, but like bashing a baby against a rock would always seem wrong. Like I would think that that would be the case. Of course, that's in the Bible too. 
So there's you know some some complexity to discussion on morality, okay? That I'll probably bookmark or I'll let David come in and correct here in a second. Um, I would also say that without God, morality becomes subjective. So there's no like objective standard for it. And I would also say that being good is not always advantageous, like this would presume. Okay, so is it good? Um, and I do like this part. I, I don't think it's good. I don't think it answers the question because if morality is man-made, you can't even say with authority that the Holocaust or the Rwandan genocide were wrong. Morality becomes relative. So the classical thing is, that, well, if everyone died who thought that Nazism was wrong, then would it still be wrong? Okay, so if everyone died and all that prevailed was the social thought that this was correct. So if the Nazis had succeeded, had third right, killed everyone off, everyone thought this was right. Then, by this context, it would be right to have killed all those Jews. So that doesn't really line up. Okay, so I think there's an objective sense that that was wrong to put people in ovens and, and kill them at that scale. Be wrong to do it to one, okay, but I think at that scale it becomes easy, and that's why everything always returns to the conversation on Hitler, because it's like so easy and black and white to understand. Um, so I think there is an objective morality. I think it's complicated, um, but I think there are certain things where like, well, yeah, sure. Here's another one. Um, so when you think about like animal rights, environmentalism, even women's rights, when you watch a lion kill a zebra, is he murdering it? So is that lion murdering a zebra? Well, no, he's just killing it. He's just you know, having something to eat. So then why would it be murder if I went and ate somebody? I, I don't know. Is it because it actually is objectively wrong or is it just because as a culture we've decided it's wrong? I think we have to be able to answer those questions. Uh, what about a seagull ripping a fish out of the beak of another seagull? Is he stealing it? Of course not. He's, he's taking it. What if I steal your jacket or I steal your car or I steal your house? Well, that's stealing. That's wrong. It's unjust. I think at our core we have a feeling that reacts to that in a very clear and objective sense that is divorced from culture or decisions that we've made about those things, I think. Okay? All right. So beautiful. This is beautiful. Well, uh, I'm doing so bad with advancing these. Uh, we can learn moral truths by observing human nature and behavior, not because humans invented morality, but because we reflect the image of God. So I want to read this one again. I think this is important. So yeah, you can look at humans, you can look at culture, and you can see beauty in the decisions they make and the morality that sometimes they have socially constructed. Um, but I think the reason they've come to those conclusions is because they're made in the image of God, not just because socially they decided that this was right or wrong. And the Bible speaks to this conscience that we all have or this understanding of what's good and what's bad. And I think some cultures decide to ignore that and to push past that for different reasons. And a lot of cultures in different parts of the world that had no communication with each other have come to similar conclusions because of the image of God that's written on us. Now we obstruct it and we keep it from being reflected exactly, uh, but I think that is key to understanding uh, morality. All right, so first Peter, be holy because I am holy. So I think that's why we're holy, that's why we're good, is, is that God uh, has created us all with his image. Okay, all right, so here's a good one. You gotta read this, it's another comic. Um, I'll just read it for you, maybe that makes it easier. I don't believe in ethics anymore, this is Calvin and Hobbes. As far as I'm concerned, the ends justify the means. Get what you can while the getting's good. That's what I say. Might makes right. The winners write the history books. It's a dog-eat-dog -dog world, so I'll do whatever I have to and let others argue about whether it's right or not. Hey, why'd you do that? You were in my way. Now you're not. The ends justify the means. I didn't mean for everyone, you dolt. Just me. Ah. Okay. I hope it's better to read comics or just let them be read. All right. So you kind of get the point. 
All right, so last one here, destiny. What will happen to me after death? Again, very important question. All right, so uh, according to the naturalist, death is the extinction of personality and individuality. The cosmos is all that there is, was, or ever will be. And that is a quote from Carl Sagan. So cosmos is all that there is, was, or ever will be. Okay, cosmos just being the greater universe. All right, so this is Thomas Nagel that says this, is that, and this is again, like the, the thought of a naturalist is that human destiny is an episode between two oblivions, okay? So that would be, you know, what happens to me after death? Well, you get another oblivion, all right? You go back to nothing. Uh, the Humanist Manifesto, this was written like in the 70s, and so humanism would be a type of naturalism, but that seeks to be selfless or loving of humans. Super relevant, maybe this should be in this group, but it's similar. Uh, say the only immorality is to continue to exist in our progeny and in the way that our lives have influenced others in culture. So to live forever is to live through our progeny, our kids, um, and in the ways that our lives ha have influenced others. Okay, so you hear from a humanist or from a naturalist that's trying to be good or to have meaning, speak of legacy, it's this thing that continues on through their actions, maybe the way in which they protect the environment uh, or the way that they raise their children or that they pass down some sort of art or culture or some sort of influence, okay? Again, how long is that gonna last? I mean, how many people from 500 years ago could everyone in this room name? Like six, you know? How many people in this room can name of your own family your great-great-grandfather's name, okay? I can't. I could probably name my great-grandmother's name, maybe. It's pretty sad, so I mean, the point is is that your legacy in that sense is very, very temporal. It's only gonna last so long. Okay, all right, so is this true, good, and beautiful? Is it true? Well, if true, then where did the cosmos come from? So if it's all there is, was, or ever will be, well, where did it come from? If there's no future beyond the grave, then what's the point in living? Good, I, I think this is true. Our hearts long for something more, and from a Christian perspective, it's an extremely bad answer. It exalts the created over the creator. Of course, how do you judge whether this answers the question in a good way or not? Because we can't go back and study how creation happened. We can only hope to examine it philosophically and in arguing and thinking through these things. And to me, again, there's a huge issue with a purely scientific world coming out of nothing. Because it doesn't make sense at all. And I don't think it'll ever make sense for a reason. Okay. And until we decided that universe was finite because the science pointed to it in many different ways, we could not say that definitively, but I think ever since about the 1920s and the Big Bang and all that, we can say that it's finite, which I think has really huge implications on this philosophy. Okay. All right. So is it beautiful? What do you think I'm going to say? All right. So some like Carl Sagan would, would think so, that it is beautiful, that they find beauty in sort of the, the randomness of the cosmos or in, I mean, let me say this, is the universe beautiful? Of course. It's amazing. It's amazing that we've not seen all of it and we're not even close. Like that is objectively beautiful. Now it's beautiful to me for different reasons than Carl Sagan. Um, is nature beautiful? Well, absolutely. I studied, even though I didn't love botany, I studied it. And it is beautiful. It's beautiful to, to see the complexity and the pattern and you might say the design in nature. And are humans beautiful? Some of the time. Some of the time they're beautiful. Uh, but of course, it's, it is beautiful. All right, no one would disagree with that. Um, but it's beautiful for different reasons. And for me, if it's a random and purposeless universe, how can that be beautiful? To me, that's like, you know, if you're writing a book and the way that you write it is that you say, you go to a website and say, okay, 10,000 words, 
and populate. And it just populates some random book. And the words make no sense together, but it is a 10,000 word book. And you print it on this beautiful paper, and it's a hard copy, and you put your face on the back and say, well, I wrote this book about, you know. There's nothing beautiful about that. It's just random. There's, there was no purpose to it. And then after you read it, you throw it in the fire. Like it doesn't, there's no beauty to it, okay? All right, so why would it matter? All right, Second Corinthians said this, so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen, since what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. For me, that's my favorite verse about all this, okay? What we see is merely a blip on the radar of life and of existence, okay? And to put all of our eggs in the basket of what happens right now, if there is something eternal on both sides, and not just oblivion on both sides, would be really silly, okay? Uh, we play fantasy football. It'd be like putting $100 on a player just because you got somebody on bye week. Like, it's like, what are you doing? What are you doing? Okay, this guy, you're not going to keep him. Okay, I'll limit my uh, fantasy football references in the future. All right, so Carl Sagan, I'm going to give him a little bit of a hard time because everyone loves this guy, and I don't know how much people, like, really read of him or watch of him. I think people sort of, like, know that he did a show and, like, he's a smart guy, but I see people quote him all the time, and he's one that will find his way into, like, Twitter bios and Facebook bios, and it's like, okay. So I want to put him up to the fire a little bit, okay? So he says the cosmos is all that there is, all there ever was, and all there ever will be. I want to show a quick clip of him speaking, and I'll let you see for yourself. That sounds terrible to say it that way. Here's him speaking about his philosophy. Okay. I hope the audio works. There it goes. Contemplations of the cosmos stirs. There's a tingling in the spine, a catch in the voice, a faint sensation as if a distant memory, a form, a height. We know we are approaching the grandest of mysteries. The size and age of the cosmos are beyond ordinary human understanding lost somewhere between immensity and eternity is our tiny planetary home near it. For the first time, we have the power to decide the fate of our planet and ourselves. This is a time of great danger, but our species is young and curious and brave. It shows much promise. In the last few millennia, we have made the most astonishing and unexpected discoveries about the cosmos and our place within it. I believe our future depends powerfully on how well we understand this cosmos in which we float like a mote of dust in the morning sky. Okay, so a couple quick things about that um, is, is that I, I reject the idea that our understanding of the cosmos would make any difference if that's all there was. You truly, like push against that. Why would it matter to understand it better? And what would the last couple millennia matter about our understanding of the cosmos? It just doesn't make sense to me. If we're truly just a speck of dust that's floating around, as he says. Um, talks about how we almost have a sense of falling, meaning out of stardust into our place now, and that we'll then float as dust onto our next place, which would be to, I guess, become part of the, the waves or something. Um, 
I just, if that's it, if that's your purpose and that's your meaning and that's where you find joy or peace or something that centers you, I, I don't see it. Okay. So I think to me it's ascribing beauty to something that doesn't deserve it. Uh, it would sort of be like one of those like real like, you know, uh, like an art critic that looks at something that's just objectively hideous and says, ah, oh, there's beauty in this, you know. And, I mean, no, I just don't think there is. So anyway. Okay, so we've gone through these. I won't read them again because you've got them on your sheet. And we'll wrap with this. This is a quote from Lauren Isley, and it answers, uh, I think, to what is going on. And I think the last 300 years of philosophical thought and uh, you know, the changes that we've made and the way we thought of things and existentialism all the way through now to moral relativism and wherever we are as naturalists or not or just people that float around in our culture, this is sort of that story. Man is the cosmic orphan. He's the only creature in the universe who asks, why? Other animals have instincts to guide them, but man has learned to ask questions. Who am I, man asks. Why am I here? Where am I going? Ever since the Enlightenment, when modern man threw off the shackles of religion, he has tried to answer those questions without reference to God. But the answers that came back were not exhilarating, but dark and terrible. You are the accidental byproduct of nature, a result of matter plus time plus chance. There is no reason for your existence. All you face is death. Modern man thought that in throwing off God, he had freed himself from all that stifled and repressed him. Instead, he discovered that in killing God, he had only succeeded in orphaning himself. For if there is no God, then man's life becomes ultimately absurd. It is without ultimate meaning, without ultimate value, without ultimate purpose. So here's my prayer. It's a prayer of Ephesians 1. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in his holy people, and his incomparably great power for us who believe. Okay? And as a conclusion, I would say, the Christian worldview allows us to live consistently and happily. That doesn't mean that it answers for you all these questions, of which most, if not all, are difficult, and that you will need to wrestle with, and that I still wrestle with. But as a worldview, I believe it allows you to live consistently and happily. Uh, its answers for our origin, meaning, identity, morality, and destiny are powerful truths that should change the way we live and motivate us to share our faith with others. And I pray that we all do. Okay, thank you, Kyle, for teaching on naturalism. Next week we have the bookend to naturalism, or you could say the logical conclusion of naturalism, which I believe is nihilism, or the worldview or belief that nothing really matters. So it does follow, I think, logically from naturalism, that if this is all there is, that we came from basically oblivion and will return to oblivion, and I think philosophically, may not be fun, but I think the logical conclusion is to live a life where you decide, well, nothing really matters because it ultimately won't matter. So to say it matters now is just an illusion. That is nihilism or nihilism, however you want to say that. So Eric Gentry will be back with us to discuss this philosophy. I've seen his class on this topic and it's very, very good. It is not the most motivational or cheery or flowery of lessons, uh, but I think it's an important one at understanding this philosophy a little bit better. Certainly there are more naturalists than there are nihilists, but naturalism is, you could say, the isthmus through which one reaches the island of nihilism. Okay, so that is it for this week. I hope you enjoyed it. We had a lot of discussion before and after this lesson, and certainly as one uh, of our uh, attendees, Devin, said, there's a lot more that we could have said about a lot of this. And so it is a shame we have to sort of rush through it. Obviously, these conversations can take place outside of this podcast and outside of this group, and I pray that they will. 
We will see you next week. If you're in the Memphis area, you're a medical or dental student, please come spend time with us. We'd love to have you with us. But for tonight, that's all we've got. We'll see you next week. Thank you. Bye-bye.